Good morning, all. Really wonderful to have you uh, in church with us this Sunday morning, or perhaps joining us online. Uh, we're encouraged by you tuning in and being with us uh, this Sunday morning as well. Uh, it'd be a really big help to all of us, to you and to me, if you had your Bibles open at Genesis uh, chapter 30, where we're going to pick up again uh, this uh, account of Jacob, uh, of God's gracious dealings uh, in and through this man uh, and his family. Uh, and it might also be handy to have your service outline sheet and the talk outline on the back. Uh, a little slightly different way of organising the service outline uh, there this morning, which I'll mention uh, as we begin to work through the passage together. Well, all relationships, all relationships in one way or another will involve some kind of dynamic of give and take. Uh, at best, it'll be the beautiful, generous, open-handed give and take, the back and forth of mutual care and consideration. At worst, it might be the back and forth of manipulative negotiations, where one person's giving is little more than an attempt to string the other along so they can keep on taking. Like an angler wrestling to land a fish, reeling the fish in a little bit, then letting the fish take its leave, then reeling the fish in again and over and over again until it's flapping about helplessly, exhausted on the deck of the boat. I sometimes wonder if that's how Jacob was feeling uh, at this point in his dealings with Laban. It's not always immediately obvious which dynamic of give and take might be at play in a relationship, at least straight away. What at first appears to be open-handed generosity can later be exposed as manipulative play for influence or for coercive control. And it's increasingly becoming clear as we read through this account of Jacob's life, Jacob who will become effectively the founding patriarch of Israel through his children, it becomes increasingly clear that such a coercive kind of give and take is what characterises Jacob's relationship with his uncle Laban, who he's currently staying with. Uh, as you have a look on your service outline sheet, you might notice there that I've got a whole bunch of little snippets from verses all the way down the page. Uh, and in fact, this is probably only about of a third of the occasions in which this, these two chapters uh, express a give or a take, a giving or a taking dynamic. It flows the whole way through this week, this week's chapters, and next week's chapters as well. Uh, let's have a look at the opening dynamic of give and take. Chapter 30 is where we'll begin in verse 25. Picking up from last week, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favour in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, name your wages and I will pay them, or literally, I will give them. Jacob said to him, you know how I've worked for you, how your livestock have fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you? 
Laban asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. After 14 years of effectively indentured servitude to his uncle Laban, Jacob asks him, give me my wives and my children, that I might return to my own father's house. Now, the very fact that Jacob need even ask for his own family testifies to the coercive control that Laban is clearly exercising over Laban. We'll see more of how that's playing out next week as well. In verse 27, though, Laban is all flattery, isn't he? He's all flattery and manipulation. Not only is Laban effusive in, in, in describing how indebted he is to Jacob, he also claims through divination, that is through some kind of mystical tapping into spiritual truths and spiritual information, to have spiritual insight into how God is at work in his and Jacob's relationship. It's like Laban is saying, you, me, and the Lord, Jacob, we're all in this together. Don't break up this good thing that you, me, and God have going here together. Effectively, this is spiritual abuse on Jacob's, oh, sorry, on Laban's behalf. He's claiming some divine insight in order to control and manipulate Jacob for his own benefit. It's a coercive use of what Laban is claiming is unique spiritual insight into how God is working in their relationship. Uh, before you know it, Laban has shifted the discussion away from where Jacob started. Did you notice that? He's shifted the discussion from Jacob's asking that he would give him his family, and instead, Jacob is, uh, uh, Laban has shifted the conversation to Jacob paying Jacob a wage, giving, literally giving Jacob a wage. This is an arrangement that would have simply maintained Laban's control over Jacob. He shifted the conversation about away from what he might give so that Jacob can go on his way to what he might give so that he control and keep Jacob. But Jacob's not falling for Laban's charming manipulation this time round. Jacob objects, when can I do something for my own household? You know how I've worked for you. And sensing that his control over Jacob is slipping away in verse 31, Laban offers to give Jacob a gift this time rather than a wage, a desperate attempt to maintain some kind of hold over him. And Jacob insists, you won't be giving me anything. All Laban's so-called giving has never been anything more than a tool to control and to exploit Jacob. And Jacob knows it. Despite Laban's easy, open, charismatic warmth and generosity, his words have the ring of domestic abuse about them, really. Laban gives, but he gives only in order to facilitate his own taking. It's a really disturbing dynamic. It might be a surprise then when, for some as yet unexplained reason, Jacob kind of begins to somewhat relent, it seems. And he proposes an alternative give-and-take arrangement. Uh, have a look with me uh, at verse 31 again, and we'll pick it up from there. Verse 31. Laban has, said, has asked, what shall I give you? What shall I give as a gift? And Jacob replies, don't give me anything. But if you will do this one thing for me, Jacob says, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today 
and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-coloured lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted, or any lamb that is not dark-coloured, will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. That same day, Laban removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted, and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-coloured lambs. And he placed them, literally he gave them, into the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. What Jacob has been suggesting here is that Laban has got this huge flock of sheep and goats. Uh, The sheep are typically white, it seems. The goats are typically dark-coloured. And Jacob's proposition, if he's going to stay with Laban, is this. He'll continue to shepherd Jacob's flocks if he gets to remove any irregularly coloured animals to keep as his own. If he gets to remove any of the speckled or spotted, the streaked animals as his payment for looking after Laban's larger flock. Then any dishonesty on Jacob's part will be easily proven at a glance. Jacob has framed this deal in such a way that his truthfulness and his integrity will be transparently on display. Jacob is thoroughly open, clear in this deal that he's proposing and it will display the integrity of his own actions. The thing is, no sooner has Laban shaken hands with Jacob on this deal, he's very happy to go ahead with it, then did you notice? Laban deceitfully goes and removes all the streaked, speckled and spotted animals that were to go to Jacob. And he gives them instead, who? Into the care of his sons, who he puts three days' journey away. Laban has deceitfully removed from the flocks any animal that is likely to produce streaked, speckled or spotted lambs, those animals that Jacob alone had the right to remove for himself. What follows in verse 37, I don't know if you kind of got a bit lost perhaps in the reading of it as it was read for us a little bit early because it's a, a confusing paragraph. From verse 37 onwards, we have this description of a bizarrely convoluted breeding strategy that Jacob then begins to employ, by which Jacob is seemingly attempting to try and claw back what he has lost to Laban's deceit. Laban has removed all the spotted and speckled and streaked animals. It doesn't seem like there's going to be any naturally, any of those naturally being born. And so he develops this bizarrely strange and convoluted way of trying to provoke the breeding of animals that will be in his favour. It involves getting the flocks to breed or to drink in the proximity of these branches of poplar trees or almond trees or plane trees that he has cut striped marks in the branches, in in the bark of, and placed in front of the animals. As if that would somehow magically influence the colouring and the patterning of the animals who are born to the flock that he's looking after. Now, I think we'd be justifiably a little bit sceptical about the validity of this strategy that Jacob is employing. 
as to whether or not this bizarre and superstitious breeding strategy is actually going to produce what Jacob is seeking for. But despite our scepticism, and I think our justified scepticism, Jacob's own flocks do indeed grow in size despite Laban's deceitful practices. I think there's actually a a little bit of a hint there at the end uh, of that little section. Uh, If we have a look uh, to the end of the little section, verse... um, Where am I? I think I've turned over the page. Uh, Towards the end of that little section in verse 43, where it speaks about, in this way, Jacob grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys... There's a little hint in there, I think, that it probably wasn't actually Jacob's breeding strategy that did the trick. When it describes the prosperity of Jacob, it uses two words that are used earlier on in Genesis when God looks at all that he has done by his work and declares, it is very good. Uh, The passage actually doubles us up and says it is good, it's very good, it's very prosperous. I don't actually think it had much to do with Jacob's work that produced the outcome that we're seeing here, I think it's actually a hint that this prospering, this flourishing has the same origin that gave birth to creation itself. And we'll see a little bit more of that in a moment. Uh, Jacob's growing prosperity provokes yet another twist in this give-and-take dynamic between himself and Laban's family. Uh, Let's pick it up in chapter 31. Uh, verses 1 to 9. Chapter 31, verses 1 to 9. This is following straight on after the description of Jacob's own growth in prosperity. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned, has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. Literally, God has not given him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. Jacob has taken everything belonging to our father. Laban's sons complain. That's the ultimate irony, isn't it? especially given that Laban had first removed all the flocks belonging to Jacob and actually given them into the possession of his sons. It's a little bit rich for his sons to be making this complaint now. But in speaking to his wives, Leah and Rachel, Jacob declares that it's God who has actually taken away Laban's flocks and given them to him. Indeed, Jacob confesses to his wives that his growing prosperity 
was never actually grounded in the genius of his own quirky breeding practices, but in the work of God behind the scenes, a work that was actually invisible to human observation. Have a look what Jacob goes on to say, to describe about how he became wealthy uh, in verse 10. Jacob, continuing to speak to Leah and Rachel, says, In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled and spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. It turns out that Jacob's deal with Laban concerning the spotted, speckled and streaked animals had been God's idea all along, rather than Jacob's. It had been God's working all along, rather than Jacob's. Jacob's success in his struggle with Laban had never depended upon Jacob himself, something Jacob's own wives are equally quick to acknowledge when they reply to him. Have a look at verse 14 and following, verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, But he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children. So do whatever God has told you. It turns out that Jacob isn't the only one that Laban has defrauded, has taken away from multiple times over. The money, the dowries that Jacob had worked 14 years to earn... All of that money should have gone to Rachel and Leah. The dowries had been intended to secure their future, but Laban had taken both of his daughter's dowries for himself. Declaring that the wealth God had taken away from their father rightly belongs to them, Rachel and Leah consent to their husbands, to Jacob's plan, to return to Canaan, the land that God had promised 20 years earlier that he would one day give to Jacob. Uh, This back and forth, this give and take struggle between Jacob and Laban isn't over yet. Uh, Next week we'll see how this, what's begun in these verses, uh, is finished in next week's passages. But one of the dangers for us in reading a story such as this one, this story of Jacob's dealings, is that amongst all the absorbing twists and turns of this sordid family drama we might easily forget that God has been present all along. God's actually only mentioned sparingly throughout the whole course of these chapters. And it'd be very easy just to have our minds taken up with the the dealings of the family and skip over those moments in which God makes himself and his working made known. When Jacob first left for Laban's household, he left with the promise that God would be with him that God would sustain him, and that God would one day bring him home. Jacob's mother had promised to bring him home as well. She never did it. 
And yet God is beginning to do here exactly what he said he would do. And yet, the truth is that for nearly 20 years or so, Jacob endured virtual silence from God. Where was God in amongst all these decades of tumultuous give-and-take struggle through which Jacob had to keep enduring in his dealings with Laban? But by the end of today's passage, Jacob has perhaps caught his first glimpse of the wonderful truth that God does not give and take in the way that Laban does. That God does not give and take in the way that all the other characters in, in Jacob's life tend to give and take. And it's an insight, actually, that Jesus himself sought to draw to the attention of his own disciples as he spoke about leaving them. Uh, have a look at these words from John chapter 14. Jesus says to them, as he's reflecting on his imminent departure from them, he says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Uh, unlike Laban, unlike the manner in which our world typically tends to give, God's giving is never manipulative. God's giving is never self-serving. God's giving never comes with hidden strings attached as it did in Laban's dealings with Jacob. God's giving is not compromised by constantly shifting expectations and moving goalposts or jerk movements to take back what he has promised he would give. God's giving never takes on the nature of a power play, nor is it in reality just spiritual manipulation dressed up as generosity. Friends, it's only as we begin to grasp how God gives when we begin to grasp the unique character of God's giving, that peace begins to settle our fearful and troubled hearts. Now, there's actually a fair way to go yet before Jacob will find his own peace with how God works and how God gives to those who are his precious people. Yet as those who know Jesus... We have God with us, not only in word and promise as Jacob did, He has given us His own Spirit to dwell within us while we wait for His promises to be delivered as well, as a guarantee of the peace that God gives us. We don't need any, you know, superstitious strategies with poplar branches and cutting strikes in to try and provoke or promote God's blessings to, to be delivered for us to come good. As Romans chapter 8 reminds us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? God's giving is so consistent, so predictable, so certain to come good, that as we begin to grasp the knowledge of that, it will set our hearts at peace. 
And friends, over the coming weeks, we'll begin to see how Jacob learns that truth for himself. And my prayer is that we ourselves will begin to find increasing amounts of peace in the knowledge of how God graciously gives. Uh, Let's pray that that would begin to be the case for us now. Father, we confess that so many of our dealings with one another are a grasping kind of give and take, a struggling kind of give and take that is fueled by anxiety and uncertainty about how our relationships around about us might play out. And yet, Father, you give in a way that is so different to that. You give in a way that perfectly reflects what you have promised to give. Father, we ask that we might begin to learn what Jacob is slowly learning, that your giving is certain and sure and can set our own hearts at peace, even when all around us is turmoil. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.